0: Morning, we're only going to be looking at one verse, First Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. And before we have, stand up in a moment and read uh, the scriptures, um, we just sang one of the great hymns of the faith Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. He is three times holy. There is no God like Him, no God but Him. And when we come to Him to worship, we must come to Him on His terms. And we are called to be holy as he is holy, and that is quite a tall order, isn't it, for us to be holy as God is holy. And yet he's given us all that we need, and we will be looking at that this morning. But as we come to the Lord in prayer, I want you to consider um, a holy God and how we might approach him in all of worship and specifically in prayer. So pray with me, please, as we... Um, Prepare for the word of God. We do indeed declare this morning, Lord God, that you are holy, that you are the Lord God Almighty, that there is no God but you, and all the gods of the people are idols. But you, O Lord, have made the heavens, and the heavens are your throne, and the earth is your footstool and your amazing love to us is not lost on us today, that you would give your attention to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, that you would love us before the foundation of the world, that we might be your sons and daughters. God, help us to see this morning in our passage how we might better pray effectively, how the men of Valley Bible Church specifically might be men of holiness and to lead the congregation in holiness and our wives and our families, that you would hear our prayers, that you would answer, that we would be effective in the gospel to which we are called. And so we turn ourselves to that task, thanking you, Lord, for your word that is abundant and free and changes us into the likeness of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We are only going to look at one verse this morning, but I think it would be good for us to look at verses 1 through 7 in context. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, chapter 2 rather, and uh, we are going to read uh, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and then include verse 8, which is our verse for this morning. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, said, Sanctify them in truth your word is truth, and to give on to the reading of that word, would you stand as we seek him to answer that prayer, to sanctify us, to make us holy, because he is holy. 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. For kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension And God's people said, amen. Thank you. Would you be seated, please? The effective prayer of righteous men is what we'll be talking about. God is calling the men of the church, our church, as Paul was calling the men of Ephesus, to be righteous, to be godly in their prayers. You know the verse in, in James 5 that says, The effective prayer of righteous, of a righteous man can accomplish much. You've heard that. But if you were to turn that on its head, the prayers of the unrighteous men or ungodly men are ineffective. When men who are unrighteous, when men who are ungodly offer prayers hypocritically, they don't accomplish a darn thing, do they? They accomplish nothing. We all, we all want our prayers to be answered. Well, that's why we pray. There's something that we see as a need, and there's something we want God to do for us. And We say, God, would you do this, please? And we pray in the name of Christ that you would do this thing we believe needs to be done. We want our prayers to be heard, and we want our prayers to be answered. And what we're going to see this morning is that to to be effective in our prayers, we need to understand what helps them, and we need to understand what hinders them. And there's more to the passage here, just like last week, than just prayer, Um, just as in verses 1 through 7 that we looked at last week, uh, were not so much about prayer, but they were about the gospel. Paul is continuing on the same theme that since the gospel mission is the number one thing that we do, and we should pray about that and pray for all men to come to Christ, but the church is being hindered by false teachers. And where it was most evident was in the men of the church in public worship. He's calling out the men in Ephesus. There are lessons for our ladies here today, but Paul is calling out the men, and and so we must do the same thing. This is gender-specific. Yes, there are principles that are for all believers, but he's calling out the guys here. He specifically addresses them. There are things that are happening in the public worship in Ephesus that Paul says, you guys need to knock it off. This has to change. We have a holy God, and we come to him in holy worship. You can't continue to do what you're doing. So what we're saying this morning is this. To be effective in our mission of the gospel, because that's the overall context, remember, even from last week, to be effective in our mission of the gospel, men must pray in fellowship with God and with fellowship with one another. We have to be in communion with God, and we have to be in communion with one another. When we're not, basically he's saying our prayers are ineffective. They're not accomplishing anything at all. Remember, Paul said in chapter 1, it is a trustworthy statement. Deserving full acceptance, acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the gospel. That's why we're here. And, and Paul said, and I am the foremost of sinners. And then he said to Timothy, he said, fight the good fight. Protecting the gospel by the false teachers. Because some have been shipwrecked.' Hymenaeus, and Alexander, former elders in the church most likely. And they have shipwrecked their faith. And then he said, of first importance in protecting the gospel in the church is that you are to pray for and work for the salvation of all people. We saw that last week. We're not just to pray for those that we like. We're not just to pray for an inner circle. God desires all people to be saved, and the gospel goes to all. And now he tells us, and men, by the way, while we're talking about prayer, you need to get your act together. You need to pray properly so that we can fulfill this gospel mission that we have been given. So first of all, again, we're just looking at one verse, and and we're going to see this in the first part of the verse. Men, and I'm talking to you men, pray as a leader and as an example. Learn to pray as a leader and as an example. He is talking to the men, and he says, men... Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. It's just one verse, so we put it up there. Therefore, remember we talked a lot about last week, therefore, since they are to be praying, all of the the Christians in Ephesus, since they are to be praying in concert with God's priority of the mission of the gospel that goes to all people, therefore, the men are to pray properly with proper conduct, with proper hearts. This is about decorum. This is about propriety. This is about hearts that are clean. Men need to pray in every place, lifting up holy hands, and the last part of it we'll get to without wrath and dissension. Apparently that was a problem. There were some kind of anger and arguments that were going on caused by the false teachers, and Paul is trying to correct that. But men are told to pray, and again, this is gender-specific. The the idea that they're to pray, this is not a command to, to pray. It's a command to pray in a certain way. Prayer was a given. They were praying. They just weren't doing it right. And it's not they weren't holding their mouth right. Their hearts were wrong. They were not praying with their hearts given to the Lord. They were praying with hands that were dirty, hearts that were dirty. And Paul was addressing a problem in Ephesus without wrath and dissension, because that's what was happening there. We don't know, um, you know, were were men standing up in the worship service and praying angry prayers? And were, were they arguing back and forth? I don't know. They might have been. At least, at worst, I guess you might say, behind the scenes, they were. They were angry with one another. And they were arguing with one another. And they were not... In fellowship with one another, and Paul says, you need to get your fellowship with one another together. Now, Paul is addressing now, here is here's, here's the, the, the outcome of the false teachers. They are causing all sorts of problems in the church at Ephesus. And this section goes all the way to chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, and it says this, Paul says, I am writing these things to you, and um, when when you see in the scriptures that a, a writer, an author says, this is why I'm writing to you, pay attention to this, you'll see it on the screen, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, he says it again, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Now is praying with anger and arguments is that how we conduct ourselves in the household of God is that propriety is that holiness of course not with which is the church of the living God the pillar and support of the truth anger and arguments not proper behavior in the in the church so not unlike Corinth, the behavior of certain people, and particularly in the worship service itself, their behavior was disgraceful and it was ungodly and it was, it was just not right for believers to act this way. And this strife is seen throughout the letter. Let me just, uh, let me just show you the, uh, the, the progression we saw in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. He said, some men straying from these things, that is the right teaching of the gospel have turned aside to fruitless discussion wanting to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions and they're pushing their way and they're they're, they're pushing it down people's throats he says this in chapter 6 if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words those of our lord jesus christ And with a doctrine conforming to godliness, and in that he minces no words, he is conceited. He understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. These false teachers are calling, causing all sorts of dissension and anger and arguments in the church, and they're going back and forth. And Paul is telling Timothy, you need to rein this in, and you need to start with the men. They need to rein this in. He says in, further in chapter 6, verses 20 and 21, and this is how, this is how Paul ends his letter to Timothy. These are the, the final words. O Timothy... Guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. So back in chapter 2, verse 8, he says, I want the men to pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension, which has been widespread in the church. This has to stop, he says. These false teachers have introduced all sorts of division. We're going to see next week. um, He has led these, these false teachers. Number one, they are men. And these men have led many women in the church astray. And they're responsible for it. And we'll start to look at that next week. And he'll say that over and over again. Men were the problem leading women astray. And they were false teachers. And he's not done with the men here. He's going to, in chapter 3, he's going to come back and he's going to address the elders and deacons. And the more I study 1 Timothy, the more I see that when he gets to the qualifications for elders, it's not just, okay, well, there are some good qualifications in choosing your leaders in the future. No, it is corrective. Because remember, Alexander and Hymenaeus were probably elders because remember, as we saw our first week, Paul called the Ephesian elders, after appointing elders there early, a couple of years earlier, in Miletus, and he prayed for them, and he said, you need to watch out, because even from among your own selves, savage wolves will arise in the church. And what he warned about had happened. And so when he gives qualifications for elders in chapter 3, it is not just a preventative for the future to make sure you get good men, good, good leaders. It is also corrective. So if that there are men in the church that are not meeting those qualifications, Timothy might have to do what Paul has done because Paul has excommunicated two of those men. So he's not done with the men yet, and we'll come back to that in chapter 3. But he does say this. So men are told to pray in every place, everywhere. This is a typical phrase of Paul. Uh, In his writings and when usually when he says, I want this to happen in every place, he's talking about in all the churches in which I have purview and I'm writing to They're to pray everywhere in every place means that men are to pray widely wherever prayers are offered. And I think this, though we could include private prayer that we should all be praying privately, men, his main concern here is prayers in public because they are unseemly in this case, because there is division amongst the men. He's speaking about public prayer. So for us, it would mean in, in the worship service, and women can pray too in our worship service. We, we saw that in 1 Corinthians. But he's, he's talking about the men, and the men are given uh, specific male leadership in the church. But he says, when you pray in church, when you pray in Sunday school, when you pray in a Bible study, when you pray in life group, men, you need to pray properly. We need to pray with proper hearts. But men are told to pray with holy hands lifted up. Holy hands. We'll come to that in a minute, but I want to talk about posture for a minute because obviously we can't just let that go. And what does that mean to pray with holy hands, the lifting of the hands? A few quick notes about Our posture in prayer, first of all, our posture of prayer often matches our attitude, doesn't it? How we pray on the outside, our our physical body, can sometimes um, indicate what's going on in the heart. And the postures of prayer that are given, the main posture given in the Old Testament was standing with hands up, outstretched to heaven and eyes turned upward, heavenward. Eyes open, by the way. That was the typical posture of prayer. Or on your knees with your hands upstretched to heaven. And some prayers are given to us where men or women are just kneeling. In fact, uh, come, let us worship and bow down. The word to bow, actually used of bowing down to pray, becomes a synonym for worship. When we bow to the Lord, we are worshiping him. We are bowing before him. We We are recognizing that he is above us, that he is high and holy. Our worship is a recognition that we are unworthy apart from his grace and his mercy. And so we bow to him, recognizing his power his love his grace his mercy everything about him and that we are in need we are people in need and bowing before him to prayer is one of those ways and another way that we see prayer uh portrayed in the scriptures is prostrate flat on your face i'm not going to ask for a show of hands but how many of you have found yourself flat on your face before god because you can't get low enough, because it's too difficult, because the problem is so great and so heavy and the, the weight has just driven you to your face before the Lord, because you see no way out, you see no answers, you see your weakness, and you cry out to God with words that are inexpressible, because you don't see any hope and that is one of the, the postures of prayer, to be flat on our faces before God. There is only one instance in the book of 1 Samuel where we see someone sitting and praying. I think it was, it was uh, David. He went into the house, and it says he sat down and he prayed. One, one, one instance in all of the scriptures of someone sitting down. And yet what is our typical posture of prayer? Sitting down. Yeah, I want everybody to close your eyes, bow your heads, and clasp your hands, right? That's it's cultural. It's cultural. We we most prayers in the New Testament, we, I don't think we're ever told to close our eyes. And so it's okay to have your eyes open. It's okay to look heavenward. It's okay to stand up. It's okay to sit down. It's okay to be flat on your face. But we have to understand that our Body posture might say something about our attitude. Uh, you don't have to be a, an expert uh, psychologist of uh, body language because body language is just an observation of the way God has made people. But if you saw two people out in the foyer after the service, two guys standing, they both have their arms folded and you know, their brows furrowed and they're just standing there and one of them is doing this to the other, you know what's going on, right? You don't have to be an expert in body language. And so to pray, maybe being too casual in our prayers, in our posture, might indicate a casual attitude toward God. But remember, standing, kneeling, prostrate, sitting, whatever it may be, these are descriptions of prayer and not prescriptions. A prescription is Like a command, you shall stand up when you pray. You shall kneel when you pray. The only way to pray is with your eyes closed. These are not prescriptions. They are descriptions. It, It describes for us how people prayed in the Bible. And so we have freedom. These are descriptions and not prescriptions. So, but listen to this. Prayer is prescribed, but our posture is not. That we pray is commanded in Scripture over and over and over again. It's not an option for us. It is a given, and it's a given for Paul here. He says, men, I want all the men to pray in this way. When you're praying, it is a given, and sometimes, once again, our posture might indicate our attitude. But... Though posture is not prescribed, our attitude is. God does prescribe that we have holy hands, a holy heart, a pure heart. God does prescribe that we come to Him in gratitude, that we come to Him in dependence, that we come to Him in faith, that we come to Him willingly and gladly. These things are all prescribed in, in, in Scripture, and when they are missing, then we're just going to the motions. and it might even be hypocritical in some sense. But our attitude is prescribed to be a holy, godly, um, faithful attitude when we pray. But finally, let's bring it back to the men, okay? Men, I encourage you to lead by example in prayer. And worship, because he's talking about public worship. And though he's using prayer specifically, we, we can understand this. This is what is happening in the public worship of the church. And men, it is your responsibility to be leaders. Paul says, uh, and encourages the men in the church to be the the, the elders to rule well they are, they are men he 's going to talk about the deacons and he 's going to talk about the presbytery who who laid hands upon Timothy and appointing, appointing him and we We teach that male authority in the church, but it starts in the home guys it starts with your wife and it starts with your children. Men, pray with your wife. Men, pray for your wife. Men, pray for your children. Pray with your children. You want your children, I know you want your children to grow up to know Christ. And you want them to grow up understanding that that my father was a godly man. And somehow we have gotten this idea in the church, this perception that being uh, all about prayer is not manly. That is wrong. It is manly to pray. Christ is the ultimate masculine male. And Paul says, men, be prayers. Be an example to your, hus- to your wife, rather, to your, to your daughter, to your son, to all of your family. You know, we've we've started, by the way, our men's leadership initiative, and we've had an overwhelming response, and I want to to address you men who are part of that. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about learning how to lead in, in worship your family, learning how to lead worship at home, worship in the church, to pray that your children and your wife would see you praying and learn from it. We've had this overwhelming response of 77 men in our church that are involved. And once a month, they're going to come to to breakfast, Saturday morning breakfast and instruction. And then once a month, they meet with uh, four other guys for coffee for an hour, two hours, just to talk about leadership. And our response has been overwhelming. Guys, if you're interested, if you missed out on the announcements, if you didn't think it was important, it's important. Paul says it's important. Talk to me afterwards. We'll we'll be glad to find a way to, to, to develop more groups. We had to scramble to find enough leaders because we had such an incredible response. So men, be an example. I encourage you to that. The second thing we see in this short verse is that we are all, men particularly, but this is true for all of us, pray in right relationship with God. Pray in communion with God. Pray in fellowship with God. When you pray, you must be in a right relationship with him. Because if you're not, he doesn't hear your prayers. And we want our prayers to be heard. That's the whole purpose of praying, like we began. He says, again, the the verse is, Therefore, I want the men to pray in every place, lifting up holy hands. Holy hands. The opposite of holy hands is hands that are full of wrath and dissension, anger and disagreements and arguments. God is holy, and he must be treated as holy. And, and throughout the book of Leviticus, it says, you shall be holy for I am holy. We are called to be holy. We are called to be unique, different we are called to be people in whom there is no sin, at least we're we're, we're working toward that we're, we're called to live lives of righteousness and holy hands refers to holy hearts, and unholy hands are a symbol of an impure heart in the old testament the 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 priest would come and there were the rituals of uh, just washing your hands with water and it wasn't it wasn't they weren't really cleansing their hands, particularly if they had been killing uh, lambs all day long. Their hands were still kind of dirty with blood. But the ritual cleansing was indeed that. But it was, it was representative that these men who performed these, these worship acts had purified hearts morally and ethically. And the hands were were a picture, and the, the, the purification of the hands was a picture of the fact that their hearts were pure before God, and he is saying the same thing. Men, when you pray, your hands must be purified and holy before him. Ritual purity is this moral and ethical purity. Sin is the obvious barrier, isn't it? Sin is the obvious barrier to worship with God. It's obvious. And it is obvious that sin is the, the barrier to answer prayers. Hands that are unclean result in prayers that are unheard. So therefore, it's important for us to make sure that our hearts are pure. Psalm 24:3. Who may ascend into the holy hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean clean hands and a pure heart was not lifted up his soul to falsehood. Who can come into the temple? Who can walk up onto the hill of Zion? Who can come to the temple? Who can present a sacrifice? Who is worthy to do this? The one who has a clear heart, a pure heart, one that has been um, made clean by the righteousness of God himself. Psalm 66, 18, very simple. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If I have iniquity in my heart, not just outward things that I did and I said, but if there's something in my heart that I have against another, if I'm angry, if I'm lustful, if I'm uh, prideful, whatever it may be, God doesn't hear our prayers. He goes on to say, but certainly God has has heard. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, God who has not turned away my prayer nor his loving kindness from me. Why was the psalmist heard? Because he came to God for forgiveness and offered a sacrifice of cleansing, and it was granted to him. But he knew that there was a barrier between him and God, and he was not in fellowship. Isaiah 59, 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear when there's sin in our hearts there's this there's this thing and you feel it sometimes i know you've you've been there when you're praying and it just feels like your your prayers are just bouncing off the off the ceiling and you know something is wrong in your heart there's something wrong in your life and that's where you have to say search me oh god and know my heart try me and see if there's some hurtful way in me that i can get it out of the way because I want to talk to you and I want my prayers to be heard and I want my, my prayers to be answered. And he says he hides his face from us. We've talked about this before, but the face of the Lord in the Old Testament is the idea of his presence. He looks down on us and we are before him. We are right in front of him. But when there is their sin, he takes a step back from us. And he hides from us until that communion and that fellowship is restored. Isaiah 1:15, and the prophet begins that long book with these words, and it reminds us of our verse, 1 Timothy 2, 8, because he says, so when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply your prayers, many, many prayers, very, very, uh, very impressive, good words, well put together, I will not Listen. Your hands are covered with blood. And he doesn't mean physical, literal blood. The blood of angry anger, the blood of bitterness, the blood of murdering someone in your heart, the blood of sin. We're guilty of sin. We're guilty as sin. What's the answer then? Obvious. It's obvious that sin is the barrier. But regular confession of sin is that requirement. It is the necessity. It is the prerequisite of worship, to restore that fellowship and that communion and to be in a right relationship with God, we simply need to confess. We may need to do some bit of restoration if necessary, but James 4, 7 and 8 says this, submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Double-minded means hypocritical. It means when we come to God and we pray and we worship and we do all these things and there is iniquity in our heart, he says you, you need to confess those to him. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, so that we can lift holy hands and we can pray unimpeded prayers. We can pray prayers that will be heard by our God because we are praying through that great mediator, Jesus Christ. But when we are not right with God in our worship, then our worship is hypocritical. That's what double-minded means. So I, it's, impo- it's possible, and it, I know it happens for Christians to work It's rather to worship week after week and sometimes year after year. And there is that thing between them and God. Don't be that Christian. And don't be like the men in Ephesus. Pray with holy hands because you have confessed your sin. The third thing that we see from this short verse is this. Not only to pray in right relationship to God, But pray in right relationship with one another, with others. Pray in in communion with others. Pray in a way that you are in fellowship with your brother who is sitting next to you. And that was the problem in Ephesus. He says, therefore, going back to our verse, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands. And holy hands does not include these two things. Wrath and dissension. Anger and arguments. Holy hands without these things, they need to be excised from our lives so that our prayers are holy, that our hands are holy. that There is no impeding of our relationship with God or with one another. The word wrath here, we, we get the word ogre from it. Arguments is really a a word that we we get the word dialogue from it, that it was used uh, uh, of Jesus, for instance, when he was talking with the Pharisees. And it said he knew what they were reasoning in their hearts. They had these arguments that they were thinking up to try and nail Jesus. And so this word dissension means arguments, anger and arguments. It's easy to get angry, isn't it? Anger is not always explosive. Some people blow up, and it's obvious when they're angry, and some people clam up, and they hide it a little bit better, or so they think they hide it. These are the people that we say, so what's the matter? And they say, nothing. <laughs> oh, okay, right. I see some of the you. you. Yeah, never mind. <laughs> But wrath and dissension, anger and arguments are certainly the opposite of what we saw in verse 2, are they not? We are to pray for kings and all in authority so that we may lead tranquil and quiet life in godliness and dignity, not in anger and arguments. So, some, some simple lessons here. As we pray and work for God's plan of salvation, because that's the context here, As we pray and work for God's plan of salvation in the world, as we pray and work for God's plan of salvation everywhere that we saw last week, we must worship in unity as a church. We have to be unified. I I don't think we have a lot of this going on that we're talking about, but any bit of it that there is, we need to root it out. We cannot allow it. We are a pretty unified church, but look, we're we're sinners, right? Right? Sometimes we get angry. Sometimes we get ticked off with one another. But the, pro, the, the, the overall context, remember, is we're trying to reach this world for whom Christ died. We saw that last week. That was the purpose of our prayers. And that's the purpose of doing away with this disunity. And that's the purpose of the men praying properly, that they may be effective in their prayers. Because anger and argument render us... Ineffective. Anger and arguments, wrath and dissension, they render us ineffective in our mission. Because then we get so tied up in in all the things that are going on in these four walls and with the people, we've got to talk about this, and I need to talk to you, you need to talk to me. Uh, And all the people out there in the neighborhood are dying. All the people out there are left untold the gospel, because we're too busy here. And we all know what happens. You you think that uh, the world does not hear when a church splits? Unbelievers know that. Guess what happened over at such and such a church? They got in this big fight, and and the pastor quit, and, and half the congregation went this way. Oh, those Christians we know, right? That's what happens. We are to be letting our light shine before men and not some kind of darkness. Anger and arguments render us ineffective. So here are some verses about anger. Ephesians 4.26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Unresolved differences are the playground of the devil, an opportunity to drive a wedge between believers. We can have disagreements but we need to make sure that we resolve them and we resolve the anger. Paul goes on in Ephesians 4 where he says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Many people quote that verse. Do not Grieve the Holy Spirit of God. But look at the context. What is the context? The context is sins of the tongue. The context is anger. Unwholesome words. Grieves the Spirit of God because we are to be unified. Paul goes on in Ephesians 4. Just like he's talking to the men at Ephesus. Just like he wrote to them there. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. As you have been forgiven, so you are to forgive others. As Christ has shown you kindness, so are we to show kindness to one another. And when we are at odds with one another, we render our ministry ineffective where there is disunity, God does not bless. At best, he's just silent, and he just kind of takes a step back. At worst, he might turn his back on us, or he might discipline us. But hands that are unclean result in prayers that are unheard, and we want to do away with that by the forgiveness that is offered through Christ. God desires brothers to dwell in unity. To dwell in unity. Psalm 133.1 Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity it is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of his robes. This balm, this soothing balm it is a sight of joy in the eyes of God. And when we do this for the sake of the gospel, unity will indeed prevail. And we have been given all that we need to resolve anger and disagreements. You have what you need. And if you say, well, no, uh, you know, I've tried and there's there's no hope. Yes, there's always hope. We have been given all that we need to resolve anger and arguments because we've been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. Jesus said in Mark 11, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive your transgressions. Matthew 6, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive them, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. Again, this is not talking about salvation. It means your communion, your fellowship, your union with God is broken because your union, your fellowship, your communion with your brother is broken and both affect the other. That's why he says in Matthew five twenty-three. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at worship at the altar... And there you remember that your brother has something against you. This is something that you have done. Leave your offering there before the altar and go to that person. Be reconciled to your brother. And then come back and worship God freely, but get it right with your brother. All we're saying is this in conclusion. To be effective in our mission of the gospel men must pray in fellowship with God and one another. If we are to fulfill what we're called to do, the mission of the gospel, the men in our church must pray and worship in fellowship with God and with one another. Because anger, arguments, hypocritical worship prevent us from fulfilling our mission of the gospel to all people. Finally, men... Rise up, rise up, O oh men of oh God, rise up, O oh men of God. I remember being in, in seminary and singing this, this great hymn of the faith and hearing all the men's voices, you know, just so encouraging to hear. so many times in prayer, I will say this, my life group has been really, really good, and most of my life groups have, but I've been in mixed groups with men and women many, many times where let's have a time of prayer, and anybody can pray, and you've got 12 people in the room, maybe half men and half women. Who does all the praying? The women. We're, that's okay. We want women to pray. They are to pray in church, but they should not pray in exclusion to the men, right? And I I can't tell you how many times I've been in a situation like that, and I'm thanking God for the women who are praying, but in my heart this phrase comes up, Rise up, O men of God. And I pray that to God at that moment. Rise up, O men of God. Men, open your mouths and pray and sing and lead because that is our mission in the church.